Welcome back to Season 2, Episode 9 of Pod Shots. This week, we have Kirsten Lomalitz Langenbrunner. She's a managing partner with Coalitions.io and joins us to talk about blockchain, governance, crypto, the whole nine yards. We also dive into a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey with a high rye content that's aged at least six years. It's fantastic, it's smooth, and well, we really enjoyed it. So if you're curious about what we discussed, then I suggest you kick back, relax, pour yourself a drink, and enjoy Season 2, Episode 9 of Podshots. We had yesterday, we had um, a Johnny Walker green label, which is okay. actually really nice. Um, so it's a different type of whiskey. It's a Scotch whiskey. Um, and this is an American one, obviously. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I actually, I actually really, I tried this. I, I, I just had a, a, a one yesterday or a day before to see what it was like. It's nice, really nice. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Like this I'm is definitely my, my go-to drink. Okay, good. So good, good to hear that. Um, all right. Well, guys, uh, welcome to the show. Cheers. Thanks welcome. for joining us. The clink. <laughs> clink. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, so we're talking about blockchain, really nice. right? Or are we first going to do like the, the introduction to what is bourbon? Uh, why should you prefer bourbon to other varieties of the the introduction to bourbon well hopefully i don't uh botch this but bourbon um is only bourbon if it's made in kentucky so kentucky for all of our international folks is a state in the u.s and it's south of ohio which is where i lived for a decent chunk of time before moving to dc um so to say the least, I had a lot of bourbon uh, while I was over in Ohio, right above the border of Kentucky, and got the chance to taste um, a lot of different varieties. They have uh, everything from bourbon that's matured in um, like rum casts to flavored bourbon, which I'm not the biggest fan of, to your more classic, simple, traditional bourbon, like uh, the stuff that we're drinking here on this episode. So. I honestly don't know as much about the history of bourbon as I would like to, but I hope that this is a prompt for our audience members out there to go and Google what is the history of bourbon so that you can educate yourself and learn why this is just the superior drink that you all need to be uh, imbibing yourselves with. (laughs) What's a flavored bourbon? You don't want to know. (laughs) I mean, you you know about like other flavored liqueurs like... um, Flavored so vodka, a, like an apple bourbon or a banana bourbon. Um, bourbon. Yeah, thing, things of that nature. Um, it's already a very flavorful alcohol, so I don't really think that. I'm not the biggest fan of like fruity or sweet things, so I, I prefer just normal bourbon. Yeah, same here. But, same here. Good, good it's intro. Very sweet compared to normal uh, Scotch whiskey, so. I like that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, spicy as well. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Brandon. What were you going to say? I, I I dived in there. No, I just said she did a great introduction. 
Yeah, I sold it totally. Like I was sold as well. It's like I'm so happy that I got okay. this right. <laughs> Although this is like competing against like all of the other liqueurs that you featured on this episode prior. So hopefully I was convincing enough uh, for the audience to, you know, go out and buy a container because this episode is sponsored by the Bourbon Lobby of uh, <laughs> Kentucky. Just kidding. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> well, we hope it one was. day it will be. <laughs> yeah. That's our our ultimate objective is to is to is to get deeply rooted into those institutions. But, oh um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, but we we've had a, like we've had a number of of obviously drinks. This, we're on our second season now. I think this is episode. Is this episode ten of season this two? Episode ten. This is the last one of season two. Wow. Oh, so we're gonna have to cool. close this one on a bang, I suppose. But um, yeah, we've had. Uh, We've had Patron. I, I, I mentioned we've got, we've had like Johnny Walker Green Label. We've had uh, Monkey Forty Seven Gin, which is so so nice. I keep saying this because it, it's one of my favorites. But you know, we do shots on this show, and when you do a shot of gin, you are not really ready for that because no one does shots of gin. Uh, <laughs> the, the flavor is particularly interesting. Um, mm-hmm. So it is, it is, a, it is better sipped over uh, ice in a cocktail, for example, but, um, mm-hmm. but yeah. Um, I would say I same think, with bourbon. I don't want to be shooting this bourbon per se. No, yeah, it's for slow know. enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah, Disclaimer for season three. <laughs> don't it's do this at burn when it goes down. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's a warm feeling, but yeah, we, we can talk about blockchain. We can talk about, you know, I mean, there's, there's obviously more than we can fit into this episode when it comes to. Oh yeah. So usually I'm very immersed in highly technical circles. So I'm going to have to take a step back and try to be very broad. Um, when explaining some of these concepts to your audience, but I guess just to give a baseline Clement, as someone who claims to not be very well-versed in blockchain, what do you know about blockchain technology? Well, you put me on the spot here. Um, uh, well, I, I, what, I, what I understand about blockchain is it's a, it's a new technology or an, a, quite a relatively new technology, um, which is a, a way of kind of uh, tracking transactions uh, in a much more secure and uh, safe uh, an efficient way than what we've been, uh, you know, uh, able to do in the past. So it, it, it can be applied to many different types of transactions. So for example, cryptocurrencies is one of the major ones where obviously the exchange of money can be tracked in the ledger and it can't be corrupted, which is super, super exciting because we all know how corrupt things are when it comes to the transactions of money. Uh, and it also can be used in, in, in events such as titles for homes um, uh, food straight from the farm. You know, you don't, you don't, you don't really know right now if they're not using blockchain, um, uh, whether it's actually truly being produced in a certain way. So I, I remember reading things like that, that it can be applied mm-hmm. to many different industries. And, um, how did I do? You did a decent job. Yeah. Um, you didn't have anything that was incorrect, um, in those statements, although I can definitely flesh out some of the information for the audience. So, so you were saying that blockchain is more secure than traditional methods of data storage. So 
you have blockchain technology and you have distributed ledger technology. So distributed ledger technologies like the, the overarching group blockchain technologies, like a subcategory of that. So I'll give like an introduction to distributed ledger technology uh, first. So distributed ledger technology, um, imagine you have, uh, you know, your normal everyday company, they store um, transaction information in a traditional database. That database is just living on um, someone's server somewhere. So this is um, not particularly secure. This is not particularly um, able to be well-preserved if say, uh, you lose access to that server or you have it stored in a couple of servers and uh, I don't know, the building burns down, just lots of problems with um, lost data and scenarios like that. Um, so distributed ledger technology allows you to, well, distribute that data or copies of that data across many, many, many computers. So for example, if we're talking about um, like distributed file storage, um, then you would have the encrypted information for a specific file distributed across very many servers. And those servers are maintained by individuals. Um, and those who maintain the servers are given um, rewards almost always in the form of tokens um, for that blockchain ecosystem. So that's a very high level example of distributed ledger technology. There can be distributed ledger technology used for um, like private ecosystems um, to facilitate like intercompany transactions. So um, for example, a lot of the enterprise applications, a lot of the, a lot of the, like, uh, a lot of the, the things that companies announce in the news, for example, like Maersk is building this blockchain thing or mm. uh, IBM's uh, building this blockchain thing for healthcare all of these partners are involved. So those, most of those projects are all not exactly distributed. Um, they're not, or, or they're not um, as decentralized as, um, as say the blockchain that we would understand from the Bitcoin ecosystem, for right. example. So a lot of the corporate applications of blockchain technology are leveraging that uh, distributed ledger technology like I described earlier um, but they're just using it within a closed ecosystem. And then you also have people that are, you know, building more decentralized systems, um, you know, all of, uh, or many of the cryptocurrencies that we hear about, uh, at least in Brandon and my circles, <laughs> I don't know if everyone's hearing about these cryptocurrencies, but most people know about Bitcoin at least. So Bitcoin yeah. would be a very decentralized um, example of, you know, leveraging DLT technology to facilitate transactions. Um, so does that all make sense so far? Totally. I mean, okay. uh, obviously, you're, if, if Brandon was to respond, it would be yes. And for me, I, I can safely say yes, it does make sense. Obviously, I have so many questions about, you know, uh, all of this, but, but let me ask you this. How yes. did you, how did you get involved with this? Was this always something? Cause I'm assuming you went to university to, 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 to learn about something specific. Was it to do with blockchain or did you just kind of like find yourself getting into this over time? Yeah. So I went to university for linguistics and I worked in politics then after that uh, for okay. about five years and 
while I was in politics, I worked on a bunch of different software startups because I'm just the kind of person to be dabbling in a million different things. And eventually I moved over to the software space full time. And that was around the time when um, EOSIO uh, mainnet was launching. So EOSIO is a specific, um, a specific blockchain ecosystem. Um, or, or rather a specific protocol, but so long story short, like what, while I was working on all of these startups, I was always doing a lot of analysis into, okay, well, what are the tools that we could use to build the things that we want to build? And one of the things that I came across in my just general market research was, um, Ethereum. And I was like, wait a minute, I've known about cryptocurrencies for a while. These are just coins. These are just tokens that you can, you know, exchange with people. It's like a currency. But when I found out that you could actually like build stuff, like you could build software ecosystems on Ethereum, that that's what made me really delve into the technical applications of decentralized ledger technology. And what what were you looking to build with it? I mean, because you said you were looking Mm -hmm. for technology to build things. What what kind of things were you thinking of building? So um, at that point, I was working for a software company that was building it. It was essentially like a a data aggregator. Um, But there were a lot of like technical problems that we came across when it came to storing and organizing the data. And when it came down to it, like blockchain ended up not really being the right thing for us to, you know, build with. But okay. it still opened my eyes just through the, the research that I was doing. I ended up being like, okay, well, this technology isn't going to be useful for, you know, my use case. So I'll set it aside and go research it later on my personal time, which I did. And after that, I was like, whoa, this is like, I think this is the, the emerging tech that is going to be fueling the future. So um, that turned mm-hmm. into a passion that eventually led to me just like, you know, doing a bunch of volunteer stuff um, in the blockchain world for a couple of years. And then I moved over to uh, consulting in the space um, maybe two, three years after that. So, right. Yeah. Right. So, and, then, and now you're, what, what are you involved with these days? Yeah. So um, I run a firm called Coalitions.io that um, helps blockchain and software companies um, connect with business partners. So generally business to business partnerships. So that looks everything looks like everything from joint ventures to um, consortium development to um, international partnerships to enter new markets, things like that. Um, just connecting two parties who have a mutual interest in collaborating um, to either launch something new, promote something existing, um, things of that nature. And um, additionally, um, my firm also collaborates with um, a couple of other players in the blockchain governance space um, to provide advising on blockchain governance. So blockchain governance is like super duper niche. Um, so I, I could get into the weeds on what that is, but um, the other other thing worth mentioning is um, for the past uh, almost a, a year or so, I've been working um, under the IEEE on a working group that's creating standards for blockchain governance. Um, so 
Okay, I, I've already gone gone a little bit into blockchain governance. I have to explain what this is. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> also, what's IEEE? Just so that people know. Yeah. Um, so it's a uh, it's like the second largest standards body um, in the world, like technical standards. So, um, if anyone's familiar with like ISO, International Standards right, Organization, one, it's it? yeah. Yeah, so um, right. Right. IEEE is like, it's basically an association of engineers, technologists, um, and they work to um, put out standards for community use. So a good example of a standard for those who aren't quite sure what I'm talking about is um, like HTTPS. Right. That's a standard or various standards for writing code. Yeah, so technical standards um so they have a an entire wing um dedicated to standards in the blockchain ecosystem and as this is a very early uh it's still a very early um technology right. to be working with um there really isn't much standardization at all <laughs> um there is just a lot of people working to try to figure out what works and mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why I really like this space, um, but you know, you, you have all of these people trying different things and because it's a very early ecosystem, it's still very well decentralized and there's not as much communication as I think there should be um, between builders across, across countries, across the world. Um, and one of the things that um, the standards bodies are, are trying to do right now is to provide a bit of cross-pollination to get people sharing ideas, sharing information on what we're working on, and then using that to fuel um, pieces of research and eventually standards um, based off of, you know, the evidence of what's working, what's not working. Um, not necessarily saying, okay, you have to build a blockchain this way, but saying, here's information on what has been successful for others. Um, potentially, you might want to implement something like this if you have a similar ecosystem. Where where did blockchain come from? Like it just seems like it came out of nowhere. But was there actually like a, a, a you know an, a, a, someone who who helped to build this or just you know create the first blockchain you know technology? Because I I, I I I all of a sudden everyone was just hearing about it. And mm -hmm. I mean my my carry on question, which I'll ask you after that, is something to do with the implementation of it. But where did this come from? Yes. So. The underlying technology has been around for decades, but the first time that it um, was like, I guess, came into prominence was through the launch of Bitcoin. So mm. Bitcoin was the first like, uh, you know, it's not the first like real world implementation of this technology, but it's definitely like when people started hearing about it, when people started using it. So Brandon, when did Bitcoin launch again? 2000 well the the paper for it came out in like 2008 and then bitcoin launched in was it december or january 2019 something like that so so satoshi guy, this japanese dude his parent oh this alias is behind it right <laughs> yeah some yeah. guy girl group alien who knows uh bitcoin <laughs> and uh, kind of just left us with it. Once it was built, he kind of disappeared. No one's really heard from him again. And oh, that's actually not so quite true. There, yeah. there has been some communication with Satoshi. Really? Or, wow. or from, wow. not with, but from. 
So oh, okay. vaguely remembering this, this was like, okay, this is like, I don't know if we should talk about this because this is super niche, but there's this one like fork of Bitcoin that Craig Wright, Brandon, yeah, that Craig Wright created. So there are lots of people that like claim they're Satoshi. No one really knows if they're Satoshi or not, but long story short, um, and I might get portions of this wrong. So people don't beat me up if I don't have the entire story correctly, but my summary of the last word from Satoshi was basically in this um, lawsuit that Craig Wright, who claimed he was Satoshi, was having with some other folks. Um, Craig Wright claimed that he um, had access to these uh, crypto wallets that were the wallets of Satoshi. And then it came out that those wallets like signed a, a transaction saying that uh, Craig Wright's like not Satoshi basically. So yeah, that's like crypto pop culture news stuff. I'm not like super duper into that space. So probably got portions of that wrong. I'm more into like the applications of the technology, but yeah, that's I can imagine there's like layers it. to this where you can just go down the rabbit hole and Oh yeah, 100%. <laughs> Yeah, there's a little bit of a cult following when it comes to Bitcoin. Um, I'm not quite sure, you know, if Craig Wright is Satoshi. I really don't think he is. And I mean, who knows if Satoshi has been communicating with anyone since then. Um, but it's pretty interesting how, you know, tight knit that kind of community is for so long um, and how devoted they are. Um, I, I sometimes refer to people that, you know, support Bitcoin as religious zealots because um, they're just like completely anti-dollar, anti-government, um, anti-globalization in a lot of ways. Um, Why do you think that is? Because they're, they're, they now they have an opportunity to kind of, um, you know, naysay everything that has had problems for so long. Uh, well, Bitcoin came out right after the financial recession, like during the financial recession. Um, so a lot of people have, you know, taken to Bitcoin almost symbolically um, as a way out of the system, mm -hmm. um, a way out of the banking system, a way out of um, centralized governance in terms of, you know, the, the way we live, the way governments run society. Um, I think some people have kind of just taken that image and, you know, I think that's also given a lot of popularity. It's given it a lot of value over time is why people also buy it. Um, I mean, Bitcoin obviously has many use cases um, as a currency, but I think a lot of people see the symbolic value behind Bitcoin as well. Um, Kirsten, you might be able to talk a little bit about it too. Um, so first I have a slight follow-up for you, Brandon. What did you mean by you think that the Bitcoin, uh, we'll just call them Bitcoin maximalists for ease of, of use, uh, are anti-globalism? Because I don't really, I don't really see that, but maybe we're defining globalism differently. Well, I, I see globalism as a, a global centralized rule over society. Okay. Uh, but I mean, if we're talking about globalism as, you know, a global decentralized system over society, then uh, that, yeah, that's completely different. And in my point of view, I just see globalism as, um, you know, having one, you know, world government, having one centralized body that's dictating everything. Mm -hmm. to um, yeah. But in terms of how Bitcoin works in, in globalism, 
Uh, you know, Bitcoin's decentralized, so it, it's a completely different scenario. If you know, Bitcoin becomes like the go-to currency or blockchain, right. the go-to way to you know operate a society. Globalism, um, okay. centralized perspective. Okay, got it. So in that case, we're in agreement. I was just defining globalism differently. So. Um, Do you think we're heading towards globalism as you've defined it, Brandon, in terms of a one world government? I think we have been for a long time. Um, And I I would agree with that. Take the take the euro as an example. Um, You know, the Eurosphere was an idea dates back as early as you know World War II. Um, Today, you have a, a group of countries that come together under similar laws, a similar currency, a similar standard, a similar banking system. Um, you know, and that's something that the world is slowly and slowly coming closer towards. But I mean, there's also a lot of pushback towards that. Not everyone wants to be under a centralized system. Not everyone wants to be under one system. Left the European <laughs> Union. So, you know, there you go. I mean, things are still happening, which, which counteract that. But I think, do you think it would be catastrophic to have a one world government? So I, I think that it's um, a little bit silly to say like, it's either or we're going to have a one world government or we're going to have the opposite of a one world government and a fully decentralized system. I don't, I think that it is unlikely, at least within our lifetimes to see a full one world government. Um, but if that did somehow happen, yes, I would see that as a a major negative thing. There are many Mm -hmm. reasons why I think that that won't happen. Um, or at least won't happen anytime soon though. That I could we have a use case, don't we? The European Union, like you said, Brandon. It's almost like a like a, like a case study of, of what might happen. It, it kind of is. Um, so, I mean, it's a much smaller perspective, though. I mean, mm-hmm. you're talking about a few countries versus like the entire globe. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to get an idea of how that would work in, in global mm-hmm. trade um, across countries all over the world with completely different cultures, completely different people. Um, with completely different religions. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's a successful case study, but it kind of is on a small scale. Yeah, um, although I would say that the um, the best example of, I guess, what aspects of current um, global culture are closest to a one-world government are just some of the regulatory bodies that are operating on an international basis that have gotten commitments from a bunch of different nations so that they have commitments of most nations or majority of powerful nations. And um, there are a couple of, couple of bodies specifically in like financial services and like fraud. I can't think of their names off the top of my head. Um, so you're not referring to the IMF, you're not referring to the World Trade Organization or anything like that. This is, a, this is something else. So yeah, this is, this is something else. Okay. Let, let me do some quick Googling and see if I could find the name of this body. Um, yeah, they, they handle, um, like, like regu- regulations relating to like terrorist financing and stuff like that. However, mm-hmm. um, they've expanded their touch quite a bit over, over their duration of being around. So now it's more of just a general financial regulatory body, but Uno momento, chat amongst yourselves, and I'll figure out what this body is. Yeah, well, 
the way that I understand blockchain as being super important for our future is that it actually works to decentralize. So that's moving away from globalism. And that's interesting because, yeah, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm super- say something real quick. Yeah. I want to say something real quick. So it's very common to have like those two definitions of globalism. So I think like we should probably use different words for what we're talking about. So let's use the new world order versus yeah, the new, uh, new world order versus <laughs> global decentralized society. That way yeah, people can be clear. <laughs> we're not like arguing against like multiculturalism or like talking to people from other countries or free trade or anything, not arguing against that. We're arguing against new world order. We yeah. are pro <laughs> Is there like an actual word for that though that separates a centralized view of globalism from more decentralized view of globalism? So uh, I don't know. Um, should we create a word? <laughs> I think we should create a word. Okay. Before uh, doing any research prior, you know, we should totally just create okay. create two different words. Okay. We'll, Anyone we'll, have any words to offer? Centralized globalization will call the one world order. And okay. It, and then the decentralized one we can call ideas, ideas. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I mean, uh, the, the, the way that, I, I mean, I'm, I'm bringing up a sci-fi reference here. Because I feel <laughs> yes. brought up. But if you've ever watched Star Trek and you understand like what the Federation, uh, United Federation of Planets is, it's literally the, the, the humans, right? It's humanity uh, with, well, actually it's got aliens in it too. But anyway, what I'm trying to say is the earth has somehow come together to be like a, a, a one uh, connected society, which then branches out into space. And there are no issues that we have right now like you know there's no um there's no racism there's no sexism there's no money because we've kind of figured out how to transcend that um and i think i think that that's a, that's a for me at least that that's an interesting concept that i would be really excited to find out if it could actually be done you know mm -hmm. but there's something that i feel and I know we're kind of branching out here, but there's something that I feel I, I'm not comfortable with when it comes to the new world order, if we're going to call it that. Um, and that is we haven't figured out how to remove that aspect of humanity, which is greed, power, uh, power hungry people, fascism somehow seems to make its rear its ugly head when we when we least expect it. And um, and I think you can look at the current situation globally and and see this uh, popping up uh, ever so easily now. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of fascist uh, uh, actions happening in government and, uh, and it's kind of worrying. So I, I don't think we'll ever, I just don't think we'll ever get rid of that. And, and therefore I'm much a, very much a proponent of decentralization. Um, what do you think about what I just said? Do, we, do you think we'll ever get to the point where we have a functioning one world government, which is actually in everyone's best interest? Uh -huh. So um, what you described is like uh, a utopia of sorts um, where everyone is just harmonious and everyone is like, cared for by the government and no one ever has to have any worries. Um, is that that a good impression of like what you outlined or mm. am I taking it in a slightly different direction? 
just so I can have no, like the. No, no, I, I think so. I mean, okay. uh, you, know, you could look at the United Federation of Plants as a socialist kind of state. Uh, mm. I, I guess maybe yeah. it's, if money doesn't exist, then it has to be in a, in a okay. way. Yeah. yeah. So um, you said you don't believe that that could ever exist or you you're feeling like it probably could never exist because of uh, fascist tendencies of humans, tendencies for greed and the seeking of power. I believe that that um, we'll call it um socialist paradise couldn't exist because of a different reason, a better reason, uh, or I guess a more positive okay, you can reason. My, reason. Um, my reasons are, are there to be bettered. Yeah. So, um, I don't think that that is possible because humans naturally for our entire evolutionary life cycle has, have wanted to strive for more. Most humans right. want to improve their own lives. Most people want to improve the lives of their families and that creates a drive for progress, a drive for more. And I don't think that that drive could be shut down. I don't think that it can be placated. And mm -hmm. if you have a system where everyone's just cared for, everyone's supposed to be happy, I think that that will, uh, I mean, we, we've seen scenarios that where that has caused um, a lot more harm than good. Um, that's my my brief libertarian uh, vision of that. But and just to touch on that too, like I mean, it, those are things that kind of make us human. Like if you look at fear, greed, lust, and desire, and all all those things that are fairly chemical based in the brain. I mean, it's be very difficult to take that away from a human. So acknowledging the fact that that's always going to exist to a degree. Um, having a utopia is, is very, very unlikely because there's always going to be an actor that's going to want to break that utopia. There's always going to be an actor that's going to go against that utopia or that's going to want Or even just people that are discontent, but not sure. um, malevolent that will yeah, go and try to arbitrage the utopia. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people think a utopia wouldn't be a utopia at all. It would be too boring. If you lived a perfect life. That's what I feel. <laughs> I would have no, no business being alive at that point. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, that's true. We, yeah, I would, I would be, I would, I would have to agree with you. It does seem like quite a boring scenario. I mean, we need challenge, right? We need to have something to, to try to fix, to try to uh, better ourselves with. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of drama, um, drama seekers out there. So uh, those, those people would find, find it challenging. Um, okay. So do you think that's why blockchain kind of uh, really excites people in a way as well, because it gives them this way of, of, of maintaining that push towards growth and, uh, and, 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 but, but makes it somehow a lot more legitimate in terms of curbing corruption. Is that, that's essentially what blockchain helps with, right? Um, so I think there are like many camps as far as like your interest in blockchain or why you think that it's a, a good idea for a lot of holders of cryptocurrency. I think they're just looking to make gains. So, mm. yeah. Yeah. There's that, there's that camp, which is perfectly fine. Um, for the implementation of the technology, um, there are groups that are just extremely passionate, believe that it's the, uh, the solution for solving a lot of problems with um, corruption, a lot of inefficiencies, um, mostly the inefficiencies. And I'm definitely a part of that camp. Like I, 
I am a like efficiency nerd. If anything leads some process to be more efficient, then I'm all about it. Um, and that's like one of the things that really excited me about blockchain technology. Um, and then there are other camps that are just like, this is more like the, the corporate camp and I'm not, not hating on anyone, but, um, I know like there are a lot of people out there that are just like reading about the technology and then they're like, Oh yeah, this is like IOT. It's going to be pretty cool. Maybe I should investigate this. What's and IOT? you know, now I'm going to go, well, oh, what's that? Oh, um, internet of things. So ba basically oh. like I, I was trying to say like, Oh, this is a new technology for my career. <laughs> I should learn a little bit more about it. And that's why I'm interested in blockchain technology. I'll be able to apply it to my work. You know, they don't have like the, the gut passion about it. Like, wow, this is revolutionary. Mm -hmm. um, but they're still interested in the tech because they understand its applications. So right. those are a couple of, I guess, tropes that I can think of in the, the right. space of people who are interested in this tech. Can you name any others, Brandon? Because I definitely think that wasn't comprehensive. I the interesting thing about blockchain as a technology is it, it can really be used in just about every industry. There's a creative way to mm -hmm. use it, apply it, because blockchain is a, has become a really great tool to build on and to use to solve problems. So any industry you can think of, there's probably a use for blockchain that can make things more efficient, that can make things more secure or better um, in, in a lot of different ways. Um, and obviously there's the, the trading aspect of it. There are people that like to speculate on, on the different cryptocurrencies out there. And, um, then there are the people that are looking for places to store value and there's the mm, ongoing yeah, that's, debate that's whether or not Bitcoin is, um, you know, an asset or actually money. Um, there's, there's dApps and tokens and NFTs and I mean, the list can go on and on. So, yeah. And that actually brings to mind another very important uh, trope, I guess. Not really trope, but just group of folks who are interested in um, the technology. So in a lot of countries where there's been rampant inflation, you have people that are starting to exchange with cryptocurrencies. They're starting to use that for you know, everyday purchases, both to store their value um, and to exchange that with others. So places like Venezuela, places like Argentina, before they went and like did all the bans. So that's right. another very important group um, that I wanted to point out. I actually witnessed that in Argentina a couple of years really? ago. I remember in 2018, their, their currency slid like 40% in like yeah. a couple of years. And, and it did that again last December. <laughs> It, like literally every every freaking couple years, Argentina is just wow. destroying all of the savings of their citizens. I remember going down there in 2018, and there were so many people that refused to accept uh, Argentinian pesos. Um, whenever I'd go in somewhere, I I had to pay with dollars because they'd only accept U.S. dollars. Um, mm -hmm. Like in the city, like go into a stop a shop or store or restaurant they would only mm -hmm. take uh us dollars or they'd take bitcoin there was those are like the only two options they didn't want to have anything to do with they would, they would take bitcoin in 2018 the ubers yeah in south korea apparently like a couple or three years ago even i remember reading a report saying that uh 
Bitcoin was quickly becoming the the currency of choice to uh, to make foreign foreign transactions with family members, for example, just because of the fact that it was just so so much easier than going through the banks, probably a lot cheaper too. So yeah, but but okay. So let me ask you this, right? So now that we've gone through kind of like what what blockchain can be applied to and how it's important, I don't really as a as a as just an everyday guy feel like I'm experiencing blockchain technology is there a reason why i'm not seeing it is it just under the radar like you know it's the same service so it's the same product, do, but do you as an everyday guy feel the impact of databases on your everyday life all the time you know no okay. I, i'm joking i, no. I, I don't know so like database. there, there are like dozens of different databases <laughs> that you interact with on an everyday basis it's right like every single application on your phone um like right this Zoom call has a bunch of databases that are involved with storing the, the data. Um, so it's so, more, okay, right, yeah, okay. Yeah, that, that's, that's what I would, uh, so I, I would say the reason that you're not feeling the impact of blockchain technology is because most people don't feel the impact of any technology, aside from the technology or the, the place where they interface with the technology. So basically like Honestly, the UI. Like we, we're seeing the impact of this Zoom UI right now. We're not seeing all the crazy stuff that goes on in the back end. So blockchain is exclusively like back end stuff. You don't build like a front end using blockchain technology. I mean, you probably could try, but probably wouldn't look very good. Um, <laughs> so okay. that, that's my answer to you. Okay, that's fascinating. So you're saying that leaps in technology and in, in the effectiveness and the efficiency of technology are uh, can be due to these new technologies like blockchain but we might never see that you know in in with our own eyes because it's under the radar it's under the hood it's under the hood it's part of the machine itself mm -hmm. yeah, yeah okay and, right. and also um a lot of the companies right now that are implementing blockchain technology they're doing it in a way that or in a way where they, they don't want their clients um, to necessarily know that they're interacting with blockchain technology because generally people are averse to change. They don't like new things. They want things to feel mm -hmm. comfortable. So whether we're talking about, um, you know, like a, a blockchain-based um, B2C business-to-consumer application or a blockchain-based um, like logistics application, Generally, your your people are not going to really care if it's blockchain technology. They care if it does the thing that you tell them it's going to do, yeah, if it helps sure. them. So, yeah, the, the fact that it's made with blockchain technology isn't that important to the end user. Um, but it's very, very important to the technologists who are trying to save money and trying to build more resilient systems, more efficient systems. Maybe we should talk a little bit about cryptocurrency, right? Because we've we talk, we've mentioned it a few times, but it's probably the most hot topic in the whole of, the whole of blockchain is cryptocurrency, and yeah. uh, you guys know a lot more than that about about that than I do. So, what do you think that cryptocurrencies will be the standard for uh, currencies in the future? And, and, and is there any pushback against cryptocurrencies, you know, uh, uh, gaining traction? And um, what types of cryptocurrencies are there? And why are, why are governments making their own cryptocurrencies? So I'll take some of those questions and then I'll pass it over to Brandon. Um, 
So on the opinion side of things, no, I don't think that cryptocurrency will ever be the one, uh, you know, variety of currency that's used. And the whole, why do banks uh, create their own cryptocurrency thing actually ties very well into this. Um, so I don't think that the cryptocurrencies that we're, you know, working with today, like the decentralized cryptocurrencies are going to be very popular because, um, like you have very resilient financial systems that are going to fight against that. And we have been seeing them fight against that. Countries want to uphold the value of their own currency. Mm-hmm. And if you have your citizens using a different currency, like a foreign currency, a cryptocurrency, then that reduces the value of your currency. It makes it more difficult for you to get loans. It makes it more difficult to uh, you know, facilitate government functions. And that is the worst case scenario for a lot of countries out there, for most countries out there, having your citizens use other currencies. So that incentivizes trying to regulate against cryptocurrencies that incentivizes trying to create your own cryptocurrencies like, Oh, Hey, you guys want cryptocurrencies? Well, we're creating this one here. It's, you know, a lot better. It's more safe. We're the government. We're endorsing this. You like that. So that that's my two cents on that. Um, and this is just my opinion on all of these things, feel free to disagree with me, Brandon. If you want, you could try to share a different side of the story, or I guess we'll see if you agree with me or not. <laughs> I, I don't disagree with you. It's There's a lot of different opinions on the space, and so I don't think there's really one right or wrong opinion or reason on why people use this stuff or what its potential is. So I, I don't disagree with you. I can't. <laughs> um, but... Will cryptocurrency, you know, be like the one and only thing? Probably not. Like, will Bitcoin be the one currency the world uses? Probably not. I mean, how many fiat currencies do we have in the world today? In in the modern world of 2020. Um, so I, I, I don't think that, you know, Bitcoin will be the one thing there to rule them all. I don't think that they'll just be cryptocurrencies and nothing else either. Um, there's always been a wide diversity of what we consider money and assets. Mm. Um, but there is a very, very good chance that Bitcoin does become a global standard uh, for currency over the internet or a global decentralized standard for currency, uh, which is kind of starting to take that form very early on. Um, we're also very close to having national um cryptocurrencies too, uh, like a digital US dollar. We're getting very close to that reality. China is test driving their digital one right now. Mm. Uh, the People's Bank of China has been testing it for a while and they're going to push it up pretty soon. It could come out as early as this year too. Who knows? As a dumbo here with regards to this topic, why would a government create a digital version of their currency if their currency already exists? So one. there are many reasons for that. Do you want to hand it up, Brandon? Okay. So first of all, it allows greater transparency on how the currency is used. So right now, if you have your citizens interacting with a cash-based system or even um, card-based, you're not necessarily getting the full picture of how they're using their money. Therefore, you have to, you know, have more resilient systems for money laundering protection and and stuff like that. Um, So first reason would be that. Um, 
Second, um, the efficiency, the efficiency item. So if a government is creating a digital currency, decentralized ledger technology is really superior like to any other technology for you know going about that build process. So any other points, Brandon? Yeah, um, having a centralized digital currency uh, controlled by the state, you know, they can put incredible capital controls on your money that way. Um, you don't have to print money. You save a lot of money printing money. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you essentially have a ledger, if you, if you really want it, a ledger of every transaction for every citizen in the country, if you want to set it up that way, mm -hmm. um, which I imagine China does. Um, yeah. And greater survey. ability for sanctions enforcement, stuff like that. Yeah. Exactly. Remittance controls. Um, you know, it's probably not going to be fun for a lot of Chinese people if, if they are forced to use a digital one, is my guess. So does it work in the best interest of the government as well because it's easier to track these kinds of transactions and what people are using their money for, etc.? So I believe all of the points we just gave were in the best interest of the government. Right. I don't think we actually mentioned any that were in the best interest of the <laughs> citizen per se. Right. But in the best interest of the citizen, you know, the anti to that would, would probably be Bitcoin. Bitcoin is in the best interest of the citizen. Bitcoin gives the citizen control of their value, sovereignty over their own money, their own wallet. Um, so when you look at a centralized digital currency, like the digital wand, for example, or the, the digital dollar in the future, Bitcoin is like the anti version of that. Bitcoin is more about the people. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. That makes Bitcoin sense. is exactly the, the opposite of that. Perhaps more like Monero because Bitcoin still has the traceability aspects to it. So you can still enforce things like, you know, money laundering control and whatnot based on following different addresses on Bitcoin because it's, it's transparent people. It's not actually all closed off. You can literally read the ledger. Um, there are other cryptocurrencies where you can't do that. So, yeah, but I mean, if unless someone knows what your your Bitcoin address is, being yeah. able to track that stuff is very difficult. But mm -hmm. sure, we could put this on a spectrum and say that Bitcoin is you know farther to this side being decentralized and private, and mm -hmm. then even farther to this side is Zcash and Monero and yeah. um, Horizon, and then whatever comes after that. So um, maybe a spectrum yeah. is a better way to to define it. Also, one other thing on, before we move on, one other thing on um, government, um, managed government created um, cryptocurrencies. So we gave a lot of points kind of hating on them, but I want to give some pro points now. Um, so in a lot of places with very little digitization right now, um, as far as like money transfer goes, these kinds of coins can be very, very valuable um, for their business ecosystem. So one, a great example of this would be the sand dollar in the Bahamas. Um, so they launched a cryptocurrency and their goal for that is to try to take um, the Bahamas um, to you know, the 21st century and get everything um, a lot more digitized, more automated, make it easier to do um, transactions between banks, between individuals, between businesses. So um, when a country like that is creating these cryptocurrencies, that can be very advantageous for all parties involved. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So there, there are different reasons for countries to create these cryptocurrencies uh, or 
distributed ledger technology currencies because they're not really crypto decentralized per se, but yeah. Yeah, you could also attract a lot of interest in terms of business as well by, by, by pushing those kind of agendas because I remember reading recently about, sorry about that, about Estonia and how they are using modern technology to improve, you know, uh, things like tax returns and just setting up businesses and, and oh, yeah. general administration. And it is impressive how these countries, as poor and as small um, as they may be, now they're all of a sudden a huge attraction for nomads and, and people who yeah. want to like kind of globalize, right? And, and set up businesses. You want to see my Estonian e-residency card? Yeah. <laughs> okay, one moment. <laughs> well, there you go. That's how you do it. <laughs> to have one. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> she was saving that for the for the punchline. A lot of what you're saying, they also do at the state level in the U.S. too. Um, there are a lot of states that are trying to put things like driver's licenses and permits, business licenses. Ooh, that's cool. Right? So, okay, explain to us. Wh why do you have that? Is it because of the things I just said or... <laughs> yeah, I just like <laughs> created it within the past 10 seconds since you mentioned it. Um, <laughs> so long story. So the, the Estonian e-residency is a program that allows you as like basically a non-EU citizen to set up a company in the EU. So this can be advantageous for many reasons. Um, however, as of recently, there've been a little bit of problematic updates from the e-residency program. Um, there are a lot of banks in Estonia that are no longer um, being as friendly to e-residents as far as setting up, um, you know, business checking accounts and stuff like that, which you kind of need in order to run a business over there. So mm. I would say it's not as valuable as it was when I initially applied for it, but Basically, my husband and I applied for it um, like over Christmas or something as like a, a gift to ourselves. And we were like, yeah, we'll totally use this someday. <laughs> and uh, and then all the crazy stuff with the banks happened. And we were like, well, maybe the banks will warm up eventually. But until then, we've just got the card in our wallets. <laughs> well, that's cool. At least you can bring it out on podcasts like this. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Shout out to all those fellow Estonian e-residents uh, in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> What, what did it take to get that? Do you have to jump through any hoops for it or was it just a simple like application process? So as Clement was saying, it is just such a fantastically digitized government. Like the, the UI on their application website was the best I've seen in all of my years of looking at government websites. Um, oh, so yeah, okay. it was super okay. streamlined, super streamlined. Um, like, we, we submitted the application. We, um, you know, had to submit passport information, a couple different forms of identification. We applied, uh, submitted a processing fee, and then waited a month or so. And then um, it was accepted. Then we set up an appointment with the Embassy of Estonia. So we're based in D.C., so it's like just a, I don't know, five-minute car ride away. So... If you're not based in like a major capital city, it might be a little bit more difficult to get to an Estonian embassy. But you basically go to the embassy, sit down with one of their people, and they set up your card, um, take your fingerprints, stuff like that. And then, voila, 
you're able to start up a business in Estonia. Mm. Are there major benefits like in terms of tax and things like that for Estonia right now? Or? So from what I understand and granted, like we never actually went and incorporated anything yet. So I couldn't tell you for sure. Um, hmm. It is a relatively tax friendly place, although it is still within the EU. So you have to deal with, um, you know, various regulations and um, taxes that the EU levies um, cool. on corporate entities. But so the main benefit of it is just to have a company that is incorporated in the EU, which is otherwise very, very difficult, especially if you're not living there or are a citizen of an EU nation. Mm, okay. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think Brian and I were talking about those kinds of things you yesterday. Know double taxation applies on Estonia. I don't think it does, but um, just kind of curious. So, like, if you made if you set up business in Estonia and you sell a bunch of bitcoins in Estonia and you make some money, asking uh, for a friend, right? <laughs> I'm just curious. Does, exactly. does the US, you know if the U.S. is going to tax you on income that you make in Estonia as well, if you leave it there? So, considering that would technically be offshore, I don't know. I really don't know. Because I, I know I at least for, and I, I know for some countries, at least in Colombia, um, like the U.S. has a income exclusion rule for taxes. Mm-hmm. So if you make up to a certain amount of money outside the country um, and you don't repatriate it back to the U.S., then you don't pay tax on it. Uh, so you avoid a double yes. taxation on that income. Yeah. So I, was, so I, I, I read into that as well, but I was under the impression that that was only if you were physically outside of the U.S., which you are. I am. I don't think it matters if you're physically outside the U.S. or not. As, as long as the money stays outside the U.S. never reaches the country. You know, it's the same with Hong Kong, too. I think, you know, I've got an idea for a future episode. Let's get someone to come on and tell us all about this. They can have a blacked out, you know, kind of video screen so they don't reveal their identity and they can tell everyone all the tricks in the book. <laughs> I would be very down with that episode. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people would be. <laughs> maybe we can get Simon Black on. He'd be perfect for that. Yeah, maybe. Well, we'll see what we can do. Um, but, uh, yeah, getting back to, you know, the, the whole kind of, uh, currency thing, blockchain. So what do you think of the next big developments in the area that you're involved with? Like wh- wh- where, do you see this technology going and do you feel like it's going to, um, dramatically improve your industry? Do you feel like, you know, people are actually in, in, implementing it as they, as they could, or do you think there's a kind of like, it's going to take two it's going to take a lot longer. Hmm. So, um, I mean, it, it's definitely going to need another, at the very least, five years to mature and become, you know, commonly leveraged per se. But there are very, very many um, proof of concepts uh, that are coming out from various major companies, from smaller companies even. So it's um, a very rapidly moving ecosystem for sure. Um, most major developments, um, the, the first thing that comes to mind is in order to build scalable blockchains, people need to pay more attention to the governance of those chains. So okay, yeah, specifically, 
Yeah. So imagine you have a consortium. Um, do you guys know what consortia are? I can explain for the audience what a consortium is. It's basically a group of companies that come together for some sort of shared purpose, usually to build some sort of tool that's mutually beneficial or fund some sort of cause that they all believe in. Um, right. So in the blockchain world, there are a lot of consortia that are being created to build blockchain ecosystems that benefit all of the parties that are involved in the consortium. So a good example of this would be Maersk, for example, created TradeLens. Maersk is the world's largest um, global like shipping logistics um, yes. entity. So they have hundreds of thousands of partners all over the world um, that they interact with on a, a daily basis. Um, and for all of those parties, they need to, you know, record a bunch of transactions. They need to have a receipt oh stored somehow. God, for you. Yeah, you have to store um, the bills of landing, which is the um, document that outlines, you know, exactly what is in this crate over here. Um, oh, yeah. And that creates an administrative nightmare. Um, so they... They had actually warmed up to blockchain technology a number of years ago, and they decided to create a consortium amongst all of their, um, you know, network participants, or at least a smaller group initially of their network participants. And they, um, you know, created this blockchain system. They were like, we're going to be storing all of our transaction information on the blockchain from now on. Here's how this works. Yada, yada. Thank you for signing up. Let's start, you know, using this thing. And... That scenario is happening all over the world. Every single day, a new consortium like this is being developed. Mm. But most of the time, they make a very key error. Um, the entity that is orchestrating the consortium that's bringing everyone together has a responsibility to start thinking about how are they going to govern this consortium? How are they going to govern this shared blockchain that everyone has a vested interest in? Because when you create a consortium, when you create um, a multi-stakeholder blockchain, you're essentially creating a collective. And collectives need to make decisions because you don't have one person who gets to say, okay, we're going to change this technical element. We're going to change that technical element. You have to be yeah. able to work together in a mutually agreeable way to come to a decision that everyone is okay with making. And... One of the problems that Maersk, for example, ran into um, in their, you know, first try at this is Maersk decided that they were going to host all of the nodes um, for this blockchain. So through hosting a node, you essentially like are, if you host all of the nodes, then you basically have control over whether or not um, the transactions are true or false. You could alter right. transactions. And there, there were lots of reasons why, why the other players weren't really okay with that happening. So long story short, they spent um, a ton of money on building this blockchain system, getting everything set up, bringing on these partners, and then no one wanted to use it. They were trying to onboard mm -hmm. these partners, but the partners were like, oh, this looks a little they shady. Like, control. They didn't want to get involved. They didn't right. want Merck to be able to decide the truth. Right. Which would have been the case. So what Maersk ended up having to do is they had to take a step back and figure out, okay, how are we going to create stakeholder buy-in? They ended up realizing that this was a governance problem. They needed to distribute amongst the stakeholders control over the collective in order for those stakeholders to feel comfortable interacting with the collective. Mm -hmm. So 
they ended up doing that. And now they're extremely successful. They're having millions of dollars of transactions, you know, moving across this shared ecosystem on a daily basis. And that is one of the earliest like enterprise examples of a bad governance scenario um, that has had a turnaround point, which is really great. But the problem is a lot of a lot of collectives, a lot of um, these blockchain consortia that are being created, they still don't pay attention to the governance element. You said, you said something about nodes, mm-hmm, right? Yes. These nodes, what's a node? Because I have a follow-up question, but what's a node first of all? Yeah, so um, I'll explain this with a example in like Bitcoin and then an example in like the private ecosystem. Perfect. So it, with Bitcoin, um, you have people all over the world that have a, a server, just a computer that's running um, the Bitcoin uh, software, essentially. And that node is, uh, or this computer that's running the software is validating transactions. Um, And you have a bunch of these all over the world. And as long as a certain number of those nodes say, yeah, that transaction's correct, then, you know, the transaction can go through and it's, um, you know, appended to the blockchain and it is forever immutable um, and is shown as correct. So in the private um, scenario, you have essentially the same thing going on, only you have oftentimes nodes hosted by the individuals who are, or the the companies who are interacting with this collective ecosystem. So sometimes you have companies that don't really want to host their own nodes, so they farm it out to like a third party, but the best um, setups, the most successful setups of generally speaking, had control over node um, running be delegated to the various members, or at least uh, like elected members, if you have a very right. large number. Sure, sure. So does so, that answer your question? It does. Yeah, it does. And okay. thank you for that, because I think not many people understood what a node was, and I didn't actually either. Um, yeah, if there's ever yeah. something I mentioned that's not easy to understand, just let me know. Here's my question for you. Cryptocurrencies require a blockchain technology to run on, right? Mm-hmm. And there are these nodes involved, correct? To mm-hmm. help to distribute the information or, you know, kind of hold it. Basically just to facilitate the validation of right. transactions. Now, As in if a government is not correct. If a government creates their own cryptocurrency, how does that work in terms of where who has ownership of these nodes because you talked about governance policy and things like that what's good and what's bad bad is when it's all owned by the same interest what's stopping countries from actually fucking with their own cryptocurrencies i mean that you kind of like almost answered your own question like (laughs) it's it's a government-owned cryptocurrency so the government's in most scenarios going to be hosting all the nodes Mm -hmm. um so, right, right. So I think, yeah, yeah that, okay, that's pretty much enough. all I have to say on that. I mean, there, there are probably some governments out there that are going to try to, I don't know, delegate node ownership to say key banks or yeah. other key private partners, who knows. Um, but from a lot of the models that I've seen, it's just the government hosting the notes. Um, yeah, I see a lot of history repeating itself somehow, but maybe maybe this is an educational issue too, right? I mean, I'm, I'm already telling you straight up that I don't really understand everything about this, but I should because it's my future. 
And I think a lot of people also would do better to know more about this. So how are we educating people about blockchain? Education is a huge issue. Um, you know, that's why I started uh, Blockcash podcast uh, right. for that reason, just to, you know, try and have more conversation with people and have something out there. Yeah. Plug. <laughs> um, it's, it's important to have these conversations though, getting people together to talk about it in a, in a medium where people can listen in and understand what these things are on a technical level generalized level um, understand what's new and what's happening you know what the origins are where the stuff come from um, having people like Kirsten on on pod shots to talk about um, you know what blockchain is what governance is you know the difference between um, one world orders and, and globalization <laughs> um, yeah. you know being able to define these things for different groups of people it's very very important stuff there's just not enough out there there's not enough of it is there like so, a, a you know like when it comes to trading standards there's like a body which helps to inform the public on what's good good and bad kind of policy and there's also financial standards uh, organization organizations around the world there are food standards organizations and they you know they're the ones that put the information on the labels of the food right so people know what they're eating is there a standards organization that talks about blockchain yet and like helps people understand the blockchain technologies that you are going to be using when you sign up for our services are adhering to these specific kind of criteria and that's how you know it's good and that's how you know it's bad yeah so i gave you an example of one of those earlier i ISO also has, um, you know, standards efforts relating to blockchain. INATPA, uh, which was recently founded, that's a European-based standards organization uh, working exclusively on blockchain technology, I believe, um, and a number of others, a lot of smaller ones. Although I will say there's no, um, there's no de facto entity saying this is what's good, this is what's bad. And mm. one of the reasons for that is it's such an early technology. Yeah. It's advancing so quickly. You have a bunch of people experimenting. We just don't know what is good and what is bad. And also, like, if we look at, I don't know, other areas of technology, there's not necessarily one good way to build a database. There are, like, ten. Yeah. And everyone recognizes that, like, all of these are, you know, equally great for different use cases. Um and it's also okay if you build something custom because a lot of times you need something custom. So I don't think there's ever going to be one proper way um, or one body that's going to say, you know, this is the way to go. I think that it's always going to be um, akin to other areas of the technology space where you have many good ways to skin the cat per se. Um, and yeah, there might be some sort of like, I don't know, accreditation thing where you have a standards body audit your blockchain code and give it a stamp of approval like the food, um, like organic uh, certification. But I don't, I don't know if that's likely, at least in the near term. And I don't even know if that'd be particularly useful considering, like I said, most people don't really look at the back end technology. Mm. So you don't necessarily have to... I don't know, prove to your client, um, say like you're a, I don't know, say you're a logistics provider and you assist Apple farmers with putting their 
I don't know, Apple orders on the blockchain, the end user uh, who buys an Apple doesn't necessarily want to know like the nitty gritty about what blockchain is. Sure. sure. This is a, an example though. I'm excited about the whole farm to table, um, seat to plate, you know, whatever you want. Oh, to call if you're it. excited about that, I have such a example for you. Yeah. Tell me, tell me. Okay. So this is like the coolest blockchain project that I know about. And I swear I mention it like every time I talk to like anyone about anything blockchain related, but have you guys heard of grain chain? Of uh, what grain chain? Grain chain, yes. No, I've heard of beef chain though, and I bet it's similar. Chain. Yeah, instead of beef, it's just grain. So, grain chain has done such an exceptional job, um, but they're very on the down low. Um, they don't do a lot of PR about their project, but they have been successfully recording um, transactions relating to grain logistics on the blockchain for a number of years now, and they've successfully reduced the amount of time that it takes for farmers to get paid from um, something like uh, a couple weeks or something like that to a couple hours, like a single day, (laughs) which is crazy. Like that's crazy for farmers um, considering oftentimes, you know, they have to wait extended periods of time to get paid for this grain that they're sending out. They have to spend money on, you know, all these logistics, um, processes and they're not getting paid so much later they have to delay things like uh, farm equipment repair they have to take out loans high interest rates stuff like that and what grain chain has built is almost an entire like end-to-end ecosystem where you have all of the players in the grain life cycle interacting with this blockchain ecosystem and what this allows is and a complete circuit of data on every point of this grain life cycle from the farmer to the um, person who care or the you know carrier who uh, facilitates the grain moving from point A to the silo, silo operators typing in data, uh, auditing the grain, sends it over to the uh, distributor. And with this full um, set of data, they have the ability now to provide this information to groups like financiers. Um, to insurance um, providers who have now um, a lot more accurate data to be able to provide uh, most of the time more cheap um, rates on um, insurance and financing like and stuff like that. that. Oh my God, yeah. yes. This sounds like almost, this can almost, I, I, I know a bunch of guys who, who started a, a, a finance company in the, in the Philippines when I lived there. And they helped small businesses to uh, get loans on purchase orders for a huge, you know, for, for a stock that they mm-hmm. didn't have, they couldn't afford. This kind of technology could rapidly improve that service by just giving oh, yes. the financier, financier the, the information they need. I know. And that's, that's because, amazing. Yeah. And, and like the, the coolest thing is like, do, do you know anything about like actuarial science? No. Okay. So actuarial science is... Um, basically the study of risk analysis, uh, risk algorithm generation, like you have, um, actuarial professionals who work at insurance companies or who work at banks and try to sit around and ponder 
what is the likelihood that this person is going to default on this loan? What's the likelihood that they're going to need to, you know, file for an insurance claim? And what they do is they plug in all of the information they have into these actuarial algorithms. If they have a lot of unknowns, that usually results in a higher rate. If they have mm -hmm. a lesser number of unknowns, then, then they're going to be providing an accurate rate, which is oftentimes less. Um, so it's not only like, yay, wow. they get more data, but it's like they have a more full picture of what this, um, this farmer's work looks like. They know that they can actually predict, uh, you know, when this farmer is going to be able to produce the next round of grain and the next round of grain and when they're going to get right. paid for it. And that just creates such a seamless, uh, like environment right there. Talking about efficiency, like crazy, crazy awesome. Yeah, the nerdiness stuff. is coming out now. I can see it. So, yeah. um, let's say for example, right. So I think Amazon are using blockchain, right. Based on what you've just been explaining to me, I'm sure they're using blockchain. Uh, I, I went to uh, Sorry, yeah? I don't know. You don't know. Well, I went to give a return, uh, an item yeah. that I got didn't fit me. So I, 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 I requested a return. They gave me the label. They told me to go to a drop-off point, which is basically just an independent uh, store that offers the returns uh, service for Amazon. And um, I scanned my QR code, put the label on the box, gave it to the clerk, and then in about 20 minutes, I got an uh, like a, a, a message from Amazon on my app saying I've been refunded. And I was like, whoa, that's fast. Yeah. I don't know, is that blockchain or do you not? I mean, that, that's not necessarily, like not necessarily no? blockchain technology. I mean, for all we know, it might be, um, but there's no real way to tell. Um, Amazon in general has a lot of money, so they are, you know, on the cutting edge of many sure. things. Um, so even if yeah. they weren't using blockchain technology, they probably could still facilitate, um, you know, the process that you just outlined pretty quickly. Although Amazon does have a blockchain as a service platform where they essentially like, you know, help you build a blockchain um, really? and host your nodes and stuff. Yeah. They're actually like, um, a couple of companies that, that have that, um, for Wait, folks is that, that AWS? Are, they offer it through AWS. Yeah. Through AWS. AWS. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Now I, now I get yeah. it. Okay, great. No, that makes sense. Heck, even Salesforce has a, uh, blockchain based, um, system similar to that where they, they store the, the data and leverage some sort of blockchain technology. So yeah, that's fascinating. God, there's so many applications for it. There was a story I had about Maersk, by the way, not necessarily Maersk, but just the shipping industry in general. Yeah. I heard from someone who used to work in customs that when a freight uh, carrier arrives, the customs can go in and what normally happens is they will tell you, you are only able to dock here if you give us something. So their staff will go on customs officers, they'll look around, they'll pick out like, I don't know, a motorcycle or something or, you know, stuff like that. They'll take it and then they'll say, okay, cool. You're, you're fine. You can, you can go ahead. I think that's, that's like such a shocking thing to hear uh, that happens, but, but hopefully technology like that uh, can, can try to curb a lot of the corruption that happens. Cause I, I can, I can imagine like you, you'll know exactly who took it, right. You'll where it, where it got taken. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I've, I've used freight before. Um, actually, this coincides with what we're talking about. I had a mining operation for a couple of years in Oregon. Um, 
one of the first ones in Oregon too, but because um, uh, Oregon was like one of the few states that was last to be tapped for power because Oregon had really cheap rates uh, where I lived. Um, and then a bunch of them started popping up around the same time I did it, but I, I had a mining op for a little while and I had a buddy in Texas who wanted to buy some of them from me cause I, I was trying to phase out of it and I didn't know how to ship like 50 different miners to Texas from Oregon. Um, cause I couldn't just take them to the post office and they're delicate. So I had to call a freight company. And they came out, we packed everything up in a giant truck and everything. And I met the driver and then he starts slapping on QR codes on all the boxes and scanning the QR codes. And then after he left about 15, 25 minutes later, I get like email updates on exactly where it was, nice. um, exactly where it was in transit, when it'd be there, awesome. exactly when it was delivered. Um, and they weren't using blockchain, but I mean, you know, the, the technology, and being able to use QR codes and be able to have that person. They were just scanning QR codes at every stop, basically, of the, of the journey. Well, they scan the QR codes for all the packages, and then it goes into a database, and then they update that database every time it hits a new location. Mm-hmm. So like, from Oregon yeah, to, yeah. to that state, to Texas, um, so, if he buys a Slurpee, if he gets gas, you know, I, I get an update. Yeah. So the, the QR code thing has actually been um, – that's actually been implemented in logistics for quite a number of years. Um, the University of Auburn, I can't recall what state it's in, but somewhere in the Midwest oh. is currently working on a um, kind of a project at the intersection of the QR code usage and blockchain technology. So they're essentially creating little micro um, consortia with a couple of different partners that are already um, already doing, uh, I guess, trade with each other. So for example, um, they would have a company like Kmart and then a specific shoe provider or something like that. Uh, and they have a couple of these going and what they do is they have pretty much the same QR code scanning as you were just articulating. That's pretty normal. They're all used to that. Only that information is now stored in the blockchain and you have that immutable accountability and mm-hmm. what this is doing is it's, it is actually reducing the amount of loss that they have from, you know, packages mysteriously disappearing. Um, so right. I don't know if they'd be able to combat, say, uh, rogue uh, government Cust- officials, customs <laughs> officers, because that's pretty difficult to deal with anywhere. But at the very mm-hmm. least, they can cut down on some of the petty crime that happens um, at the, the crossover points when they're putting, um, you know, the merchandise from truck to truck. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it helped a lot. It, at least I knew where everything was. I had a little yeah. bit more of a guarantee that it was being delivered because I had the driver physically, you know, skinning the QR codes upon pickup and delivery, which was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, which yeah. Makes blockchain too. Um, you know, being able to implement a very similar aspect to blockchain and timestamp and be able to figure out where things are in a supply chain, especially food, which is what I'm really excited about. Being able to know that my food uh, that was treated a certain way or actually came from a certain source um, or is not actually past expiry or didn't get extra chemicals put into it. Like being able to have certain guarantees in the process. And then, you know, from the farmer's perspective too, the farmer's going to make more money. Um, you yep. know, also trying to eliminate the people in the middle 
and be more direct. Um, the farmer makes a lot more money and doesn't get screwed. You get a better deal on, on your food or drink or whatever it is. So I'm, I'm very excited in the food industry for blockchain to be implemented. 100%. It's possible that COVID has actually accelerated all of that process because we, we, we have a, a financial uh, a crisis on our hands and an economic crisis. And so, you know, this kind of technology could really improve small businesses in terms of how they're able to um, keep and, and acquire new customers and then save money on top of that, like you said. So um, I'm actually really excited now that so I know Specifically more for the grain that. chain example, um, right. I do know that their team has seen like a major uptick in interest in their platform after the whole crisis. Um, I did a podcast interviewing them, um, you know, in the midst of the crisis, maybe a couple months ago. And they were like, yeah, like super crazy busy. Like everything's doing really great. We're trying to help a lot of people now, but like, oh man, like we didn't think that this would be happening this year. So it's definitely, um, but the whole crisis has definitely had a positive impact on a decent number of companies in the blockchain space. Um, like for example, there are a decent number of like blockchain, um, like FinTech type companies that are helping so like banks um, automate their transactions, um, automate things like KYC. And these guys are doing great because you can no longer just walk into a bank and, uh, you know, have a dozen customers go and, um, you know, hand you their card and their other card and facilitate all of these, um, these checks um, that a lot of these banks are still doing manually. So um, being able to facilitate, like identity management and um, proof of uh, proof that you are who you are. Uh, that's been a very big thing um, that blockchain has been used for in um, the financial industry. And that's definitely booming right now um, because there's just a lot less person to person in person interaction that can happen uh, on a reasonable scale now. So interesting. So, okay. I think we've gone through a lot and for anyone who was listening that didn't know much about blockchain in the beginning, they probably have a much better idea. I know I have. Um, how can people find you if they want to, to, to know more about you or get in contact? How can they find you online? Yeah, uh, I'd say LinkedIn is probably the best place. Um, just search Kirsten Pamela's Langenbrunner. Uh, you could probably find that in the show notes or something like that. Yeah, sure. Well, I'd put it. Let's have another drink, guys. We didn't really kind of have a communal shot throughout the entire show, apart from the beginning. So, uh, yeah. okay, we'll take a big swig. It's customary to uh, send off the show in a proper form. Indeed. Indeed. Let's do it. Cheers. Thank you, Kristen. Cheers, absolutely, to blockchain technology and the future. Yeah. Yeah.